if Jesus has risen from the grave, if you're a follower of Jesus, that means Jesus is the savior of the world and he is God in human flesh. It transforms how we grieve. We don't grieve without hope. We grieve with hope knowing that Jesus has conquered the grave. What if I told you, you could prove or disprove the entire Christian faith with one simple question? If it's true, Christianity is true. But if it's false, well, it's it's just not. Which makes this perhaps the most important question in the history of the world. I mean, everything hinges on this. Okay, you ready? Did Jesus of Nazareth truly actually rise from the dead? Well, one of the world's most authoritative voices in discussing this question is here with us today to break down the evidence. Dr. Sean McDowell is a celebrated author, a globally known speaker and YouTuber, and a professor of apologetics at Biola University. Okay, Sean, my brother, why is this question so crucial, so pivotal, so significant? Love the way you frame that. You're right. It's hard to think of a question more important than whether Jesus rose from the grave or not. Why? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes it very clear. He said, if Jesus is not risen, our faith is in vain. We are still in our sins. We are to be pitied. So Christianity uniquely is based upon a single, testable, historical event, namely the resurrection. So in some ways, this makes Christianity unique because it invites an investigation of the evidence. Is there archaeology that can play into this? Is there uh, ancient manuscripts that play into this? What explanation accounts for the explosion of Christianity rooted in this idea of a risen Savior? But literally, the truth or falsity of Christianity rests upon whether Jesus rose or not. So you got to think Paul had a lot of confidence writing this a couple decades later, saying, I'm going to hinge everything on this historical event. So it kind of matters, to say the least. So it's a big deal. So what truths follow if Jesus has, in fact, risen? So one truth, I think, is that God exists. Hmm, now, on. there's other ways we can talk about the existence of God, fine-tuning, the origin of the universe, consciousness, beauty. But if Jesus has risen from the grave, then this points towards a cause outside of the natural world that has power over life and death. Hmm. So if we walk outside and there's a huge dent in my car, and I'm like, Raj, what happened? You're like, bro, I saw it. I couldn't stop it. I tried, but this feather was floating down. I have a Ford, so you wouldn't believe it. If it was a Chevy, you might. Sorry, I just had to take a jab at that. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it on any car because a feather's not a significant cause for that effect. Well, if it's predicted ahead of time, someone's going to be crucified of all deaths, buried. On the third day, come back to life. That shows uh, power over time, power over life and death. That points towards a transcendent God, namely the God that Jesus believed in. So if Jesus is risen, you kind of get God thrown in with it. Second, we actually know that Christianity is true. So of all the different religions in the world, it's uniquely Christianity that's based on a testable historical event. Mm. Jesus claimed to be God. He fulfilled prophecy. He gave profound teachings. 
he did miracles. But when asked for a sign, he said, I will give you the sign of Jonah, namely the resurrection as confirmation. So of all the religions in the world, if Christianity is risen from the grave, well, if Jesus has risen from the grave, God exists and Christianity is true. Third, there's life after death. This life is not all there is. So in the early 90s, there was this movie called Flatliners that had Julia Roberts, Kiefer Sutherland, Oliver Platt, and of course, Kevin Bacon in it. <laughs> and they're medical students and they want to know if there's life after death. So it's somewhat morbid, but they decide to flatline each other's hearts and then resuscitate back and say, what do you see on the other side? Now, obviously, don't try this at home, but as far as I remember, it's like 15 seconds, 30 seconds, and then they're pushing like the four-minute barrier where there's brain death. Now, the experiment makes sense. If we want to know what it's like on the other side, talk to someone who's been there and who can come back. Mm. Well, Jesus didn't die 15 seconds or four minutes. He died and rose the third day. And he said to his apostles, I'm going to prepare a place for you with my father. He came back, conquered death. Now, there's other ways I think we can know there's eternal life, but that's a separate conversation. But quite literally, if Jesus has risen from the grave, there's a transcendent supernatural source. Christianity is true. And life continues after the grave. Okay, so let's rewind. How do we know there even was some dude named Jesus? So if you get online, there's debates about the existence of Jesus. And for the most part, they stay online. There is virtually no, there are virtually no scholars trained in this area that doubt the existence of Jesus. You count them on one hand, maybe two hands. Now, truth is not determined by numbers, but there's a reason there's so much consensus minimally on the existence of Jesus. So for example, we have the four gospels, which are independent biographies of Jesus. We have Acts, we have the letters of Paul, we have all the New Testament documents that affirm the existence of Jesus. Then you have church fathers that follow after this. So this is people like Ignatius in the second century Polycarp, Clement of Rome, who minimally affirmed the existence of Jesus. Then we have sources outside of the Bible, like Tacitus, a Roman in the early second century, Josephus, a Jew in the, the, probably the 90s, the end of the first century, that affirmed the existence of Jesus. That's why Bart Ehrman, one of the leading critics of the faith today, wrote a book about a decade ago, basically saying the idea that Jesus didn't live is a modern myth. Mm. We know he lived. I think we should just stop there and pause for a second. So if you're watching this and you're wondering, Jesus of Nazareth existed, period. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's right. So, so let's take it a step further. How do we know that he was actually crucified? I mean, there's a bunch of okay. theories, the swoon theories. How do we know he was actually crucified and died and all that good jazz? Yeah, so this theory is less popular today, but you see it creep up now and then. And, and certain Muslim traditions will deny that Jesus died and was crucified. So how do we know? Again, we have multiple sources in the Gospels, independent biographies that affirm that Jesus was crucified. We have the writings of Paul, makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, Jesus died. Uh, you have the other New Testament books. Again, Tacitus and Josephus not only mention the existence of Jesus, but his crucifixion. We have early, consistent, unanimous evidence that Jesus not only lived, but was crucified. But you also got to realize, if you're going to invent 
a Messiah, one that was crucified and dishonored the way that Jesus was, is the opposite of what you would invent. You mm. wouldn't give such a dishonorable, shameful death and say, but he's risen, he's Lord. That's why Paul says, you know, the cross of Christ is foolishness to yep. the Greeks and it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's not the kind of thing that you would invent. So there's virtually unanimity that Jesus was crucified. Amazing. So let's go to the next step. How do we know that he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb? Okay, good. Now, some some critics, even brilliant scholars like J.D. Crossan would say the body was just thrown in like a shallow ditch. And that happened at times and was not uncommon. So some people could say, if you look at the chance of somebody being crucified, being given honorable burial, it's more likely he's just thrown into a ditch. Well, if all we had was the story that he was crucified, that might be the best explanation. But Again, we have multiple independent accounts. So scholars have something they call multiple attestation, mm. that if there's a fact that multiple gospels or multiple sources affirm, it's far more likely to be true. So historically speaking, for example, uh, Jesus turning water into wine, that's only in John chapter two. I believe that, and we can make a case for that, but historically would be on less solid ground than the crucifixion of Jesus or the burial of Jesus reported in all four gospels and even in the letters of Paul. So we have multiple sources. There's no other tradition of any other burial of Jesus early whatsoever that we've come across. But you also look at Joseph of Arimathea and think, is this kind of the kind of figure that would be invented? And by the way, it's amazing we know the name Joseph where he's from Arimathea, that he was a part of the Sanhedrin, and that he was rich. Like, these are not insignificant details of a burial 2,000 years ago. That's significant. We know his name. Are the apostles or the gospel writers going to invent a heroic, honorable burial hmm. of somebody from the very party that condemned Jesus to death? Minimally, you have to say that's at least, you know, less likely than not. So you start to piece these things together. And even today, you and I have been to Israel. We've yes, been sir. to the burial spot of Jesus. Yes, sir. And scholars together, scholars are very confident, Jews, Christians arranged, that we have the actual spot where Jesus was buried. Mm -hmm. So I think there's no good reason to doubt that Jesus lived, crucified, and buried. So what it sounds like is that a lot of people can get behind that there was a Jesus. Yep. A lot of people can get behind the fact that he was crucified, maybe not the Muslim faith. Yep. And even uh, some people think, you know, maybe he was buried. I think a good amount. Good yes. amount. How about the empty tomb? Okay, so, so far it's not supernatural. And technically an empty tomb within itself is not necessarily supernatural. Because if somebody stole the body, you have an empty tomb. But we're getting closer to the reasons supernatural, where of course there's debate. The leading resurrection scholar in the world, Gary Habermas, is working on a multi-volume life's work on the resurrection. It's going to be four wow. volumes, probably about 5,000 words. It's in process. He's been spending 60, 70 hours a week for years on this thing. And he's said in one of his previous writings, maybe he has more now, like over 20 different arguments for the empty tomb. Now, some are stronger than others, but one argument, this would probably be if I had to just give one argument I'd say is most interesting, is all four Gospels report 
that it was women who discovered the empty tomb. Mm. Now, why does that matter? Well, this is broadly a patriarchal culture. Men tended to have more power, more education. In a court of law, a man's testimony was considered more valuable than a woman's. So the basic principle was the more important an issue, the more likely you're going to have a man testify. So there's an ancient Jewish proverb that's obviously an overstatement, but it says, better the words of the law burnt than delivered to women. Wow. So if that's the kind of culture that we're in, and that the gospel writers are inventing a story in which you need an empty tomb, why have female witnesses be the first who are there and the men are confused or leave or go back fishing or something mm. like that. That makes no sense. Minimally, they at least believed the tomb was empty and that women discovered it. Mm. It's called the criterion of embarrassment. You don't intentionally invent material that disparages your testimony and gets you embarrassed. If anything, you make up stuff to make yourself look good. Human nature does. So that's one argument. You know, the, the crucifixion, as you and I know, we went to the two different spots, although we probably know where Jesus was really crucified. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Garden Tomb yes. were the kind of two competing places. I have my opinions, but it's not in the gospel anywhere. It happened at Agreed. the Garden Tomb or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. That's a whole other show, and we can do that again. Yeah, we could, but we know we know where Jesus was crucified, and yep. we obviously know where he was buried, but both of these are roughly in Jerusalem, yes. right? Right outside the city gates, just like the gospel say. So if the apostles are inventing a story based on an empty tomb and a resurrection, the hardest place to advance a false story would be Jerusalem mm. if it weren't true. Great point. They don't go to Greece. They don't go to America. They don't go anywhere else we can think of. They go right back to the very city. And in Acts 2, Peter says to his audience who's listening, he says, these things have happened in your myths and you yourselves know. Go check it out. He appeals to their knowledge, wow. which if it wasn't true, they could have shot him down and disproven him. So that's another piece of evidence that goes, huh, at least minimally they're super confident. So we could walk through other evidences, but certainly a majority of scholars based on Gary's research would concede that the tomb was empty. Is there like a good book that you'd recommend that could, you know, more hit on that point? Because our good friend, Dr. Mike Lacona, has this book that's you know this big. Is there anything that maybe people can pick up that's a little bit more? So Mike Lacona's book does not give arguments for the empty tomb Okay. in that massive text, but he's Huge. written a book with Gary Habermas called The Case for the Resurrection. Okay. And he walks through evidence for the empty tomb. That's, I'd say, Case for the Resurrection, uh, the book with my father, Evidence Demands Verdict, we have a huge chapter. It's almost a small book within itself on the evidence for the resurrection. So those two. So let's take a pause here. Okay. What do, how do atheists push back against all of this mountain of evidence that there was an empty tomb, that there was a resurrection? This is a super interesting question because there's a whole bunch of different naturalistic hypotheses to count, explain this away. So in the past, it's been Jesus didn't really die, swoon. Uh, the women went to the wrong tomb. It's all a legend. Gary Habermas has said that idea of having these naturalistic hypotheses is no longer the primary critique. It's not the particulars, because I think the facts are there. It's a supernatural, or what you might say is an anti-supernatural bias, mm. a naturalistic worldview that just says, we know miracles don't happen. Therefore, there must be a better explanation. That's the primary resistance to 
the resurrection. Now, of mm. course, this is a whole nother topic, but there are incredible books recently documenting masses of miracles around the world that I think push back on what we think we know in the modern age. Because I think some of the arguments that I've heard are like, Jesus had a twin brother. It's like, come on. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's a few people that argue that. That's really not yeah. common. So what you find with these is these hypotheses can explain maybe one or two facts, but there's no hypothesis that can account for mm. all the facts in the way that the resurrection does. But the problem with the resurrection is it requires a miracle and it's supernatural Come on. and confirms the Christian faith. So how do we know that Jesus actually appeared to people? So great question. This is where now it's become clearly supernatural. Now, I guess if Jesus swooned and showed up and appeared to people, like it's possible to try to get appearances, but most people would concede if Jesus really was crucified and showed up with, to people, something supernatural is going on. Well, how do we know this is the case? Well, we have multiple accounts of the appearances of Jesus. We have the appearance to women, mm -hmm. which again, why invent that as one of the early first like to Mary? That doesn't seem to fit the narrative. You have the appearance to the apostles. You have doubting Thomas, who of course wasn't really a doubter. A doubt says, I'm not sure if I believe or not. Thomas is like, I won't believe unless you show me. So he's unbelieving Thomas, not doubting Thomas, <laughs> by the way. Throwing shade on him, Sean. And No, I, I, yeah, that's a whole separate topic. <laughs> we shouldn't call him doubting Thomas because that tells people if they have questions, right. then you're akin to somebody who rejects the faith. Right. That's why I get in that. But you also have, so you have the 12, uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul lists multiple other apostles. You have the list to the 500, but then you also have Paul. Hmm. And the vast majority of scholars will concede that Paul had an experience hmm. that he believed was of the risen Jesus. So you have the apostles, and then you have Paul in an early source. You start to piece these together, and it's hard to just simply explain away the life-transforming appearances that people claim they had of the risen Jesus. And by the way, one cool testament of this is in 1 Corinthians 15, is a letter Paul writes to the church in Corinth, mid-50s. What's interesting about this claim is this Paul says, I pass on to you, the church in Corinth, what was passed on to me. So he embeds in 1 Corinthians 15, mm. this short saying wow. and statement that had earlier been given to him. Mm. He says, Jesus, you know, lived, died, buried, rose on the third day and appeared to the apostles and appeared to James and appeared to the 500. And then Paul adds on, and he also appeared to me. That writing, since Paul is passing on something in the mid fifties, predates the mid fifties. So when did Paul get it? Well, we know about three or four years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he meets with the apostles and then 14 years later. So you're getting closer and closer to the events themselves when this is handed to Paul. Mm. So the, there is no early Christian faith apart from the idea that Jesus rose and appeared to people. To be a Christian was to believe that Jesus appeared to people. Fascinating. I, uh, I, one of the people in the scripture I love the most is unbelieving Tom. So let's say my, my friend here is watching this and they're like, nah, fam, I, I, I'm, I'm out, no good. I, I don't believe it. Thomas was with Jesus during his ministry. So how do, what, what wisdom, what knowledge, what insight can we gain from saying, hey, this guy was with Jesus his, during his ministry. And yet at the end, 
he didn't believe. So how, how does that help us when we have doubts or questions or concerns about our faith? So here's one interesting thing. People would say, well, didn't Jesus castigate Thomas for demanding evidence? Shouldn't you just have blind faith? The answer is no. Mm. Thomas had evidence. Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. Given that he did miracles and said this, Thomas should have known. Second, Thomas had the evidence of the 10 other apostles, because Judas was gone, who said, we've seen the risen Jesus. So at the end of the Gospel of John, it's not saying, blessed are those who don't ask questions, blessed are those who don't demand evidence and just believe. It's saying, Thomas, you see me in human flesh, but blessed are those who won't. Mm. But they will still have this book written down, the very next verses, by believing they can have life in his name. So it's not an evidence-based faith versus a non-evidence-based faith. It's a recognition that Thomas was blessed to see Jesus in the flesh. So I, I would just say, okay, why aren't you convinced? What's a better explanation for the origin of the Christian faith, the conversion of Paul, the apostles being willing to suffer and die for this? Mm. It's not enough to just say, I don't believe. I think it demands an explanation. What's the best explanation for these facts? Mm. And tell me why these facts are wrong. I invite that kind of conversation. And I think the apostles and the scriptures do as well. We're not afraid of the facts. We're not afraid of the evidence. Let's look at it and see where it points. I love that. So we could have a whole episode on that, but faith yeah. in Jesus isn't, uh, I hope it happened. No, it's, faith is not in spite of the evidence. Faith is trust in God in light of the evidence. Now it goes beyond that, but it's not blind. Mm. So let me play devil's advocate. Okay. Ah, uh, uh, the disciples, they just, they made it up. They were lying. This, so this is a common one that you hear. And my, my problem would be, why does somebody tell a lie? So a friend of mine, Jay Werner Wallace, who you definitely need to have on this show, by the way. Let's do it. Cold case, Former right? atheist, cold case detective. Yeah, his stuff's great. He has never lost a case in, I don't know, 30 plus years now as a cold case detective. Brilliant. Dateline, nightline, et cetera. Former atheist, examined the gospel of Mark, convinced by the evidence. He's written his books and he's told me in person, he says, every court case, people lie for one of three reasons. Power, sex and lust, or uh, money and greed. Let's look at the apostles and the message of Jesus. Hmm. Was it about power? No, Jesus said the first shall be last. He washed their feet. He said, I lay down my life. Now you go do the same. Was it about sex and greed? Jesus was single. He, what's amazing is he would still pass the Me Too movement because of the dignity and respect he showed to women. Hmm. Was it about money? No, Jesus was probably lower to maybe middle class. Certainly in the culture at that time, it wasn't get on the Christian bandwagon so you make money. Now that's a whole different conversation today that we could have. In many cases, the celebrity culture, but in that day, that was not a money-making thing. In fact, there was a huge emphasis built in, care for the poor, give away. This is God's, be a steward of it. So none of those signs why people commit crimes and do wrong things are present with the apostles. It's the opposite. But the piece for me, and I did my whole dissertation on this, so I've written a 350-page academic wow. book on the fate and deaths of the apostles. Yeah. 
And what we know early on is they believe Jesus had risen from the grave, and they put themselves in harm's way. Just read the beginning of Acts. For the message that Jesus had risen, they're threatened, they're beaten. Stephen is stoned early in Acts. James is killed in Acts 12, and they're just told, stop preaching about Jesus. Mm. Am I really supposed to believe? They invented this message and are lying about it and then intentionally put themselves in harm's way? I just don't buy it. Mm. People might die for what they believe, but they're not going to die for something they know to be false. Yeah, you. so you might find a few exceptions of that if there's some other reason that reason. they know it's false, but there's a political reason or for a loved one. Like you can find certain exceptions to that. But the bottom line is they're willing to suffer and put themselves in mm. harm's way. And you start to do like what you said, let's find some other motivation for this. And it's lacking. Now, this doesn't prove Christianity's true, but I think it deeply undercuts the idea that they're intentionally propagating a message that they know is false and they're lying, at least I think we know they're sincere and they think it's true. So let's stay on the uh, devil's advocate bandwagon. Okay. Sean, they're just, they were hallucinating, bro. That they, they were making this up. Their, their grief caused them to see the risen Jesus. So these are actually two different kinds of uh, naturalistic explanations. One would be grief uh, kind of, what you call grief appearances and others hallucinations. They overlap but are somewhat distinct. And there are certain phenomena that when people have, they've lost a loved one, there's grief, and people saying that they've had certain sightings and appearances of loved ones. But at the heart of so many of the appearances doesn't mean the person is risen and resurrected and back. It means they're dead and they're gone and they've appeared from the other side. So these grief appearances don't really seem to match what we've discovered about them later on. Now, by the way, best candidate, maybe Peter could be a candidate. Okay. What about Paul? Paul wasn't grieving. He was like, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin, zealous in the law. So if you have grief observances, now it's like, well, Paul was schizophrenic and we got to start adding <laughs> all these different theories together. Right. That's where it becomes ad hoc. Hallucinations as a, whole, as a whole are internal projections. There's no external object. Like UFOs, there's some unidentified flying object. We just don't know what it is. Hallucinations are internal, subjective like projections. So hallucination wouldn't explain why they believed Jesus was risen. It would project something. You still need an explanation of why they came to that belief in the first place. So that's one interesting challenge. Second, if Jesus hallucinated, then the body would still be in the tomb. So it's not gonna explain mm -hmm. all the facts, including the empty tomb. But one of the biggest challenges is hallucinations are individual experiences, not groups. Right. Now there's been some pushback of a few isolated cases of group hallucinations. Fine. The mass shows that these are individual projections. Group hallucinations is not common. And what we have are multiple group hallucinations. So I just, that, that's very popular and it has some appeal. I get it, but I think it has some serious holes explaining all the facts as we know it. So Sean, this channel is called Can I Trust the Bible? Okay. And we can trust 
that there was a Jesus. Yep. That he was crucified. Yep. That he was buried. Mm-hmm. That the tomb was empty and that people saw him alive. That's right. How should that truth inform our daily lives? Well, I think it does two things. That means if Jesus has risen from the grave, if you're a follower of Jesus, that means Jesus is the savior of the world. Come on. And he is God in human flesh. It's not enough to have your fire insurance. It's not enough to go to church and just, you know, get charged up on church and then live the rest of your life in a secular fashion. It means Jesus is Lord of everything. Let's go. My finances, my time, my body. The Bible says you are bought with a price. Come on. Honor God with your body. We are stewards and we have a mission to live this out and to make his name known to the world, not our own. That's what the resurrection tells us. It transforms how we grieve, right? Paul writes in his letter to Thessalonians, we don't grieve without hope. We grieve with hope knowing that Jesus has conquered the grave. We have confidence that our sins are forgiven. It's amazing how much doctrine in the scriptures is tied to the resurrection. It's not just a fact in the past, Paul talks about living in the power of the resurrection that we have been forgiven. So if that's true for us, we need to be agents of forgiveness to other people. Now, if you're watching this, how does it change your life and you're not a Christian? Mm. That means you ought to reckon seriously with the claims that Jesus made, that I am God in human flesh. He said, not in those words, but in his actions and his teachings and his statements, he was Yahweh made flesh. Mm. And he demonstrated this through miracles, fulfilling prophecy, ultimately rising on the third day. That means Jesus has authority to speak on spiritual things. So I understand some people watching are like, it feels so exclusivistic. I don't like the idea of hell. I get that. I don't like it either. But I want to know who has the most authority through the history of the world to speak on spiritual things. Sure seems to me the miracle-working, virgin-born, sinless, resurrected Savior. If you are not a Christian, you got to wrestle with the question Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Wow. I could talk to you for days. We have to have you on more episodes. Um, I can't thank you enough for coming on this one. But let's say, to close us out, my friend here um, is a skeptic, Hmm. is on this random YouTube link, came across this episode, and they're like, okay, I don't know how to handle this, but it sounds like everything Dr. McDowell is saying is resonating. There's something in my heart. There's something in my soul stirring. What do I do, doctor? Like, how, how would you um, direct them? Well, first thing I would say is, it, you didn't ask me to say this, subscribe to your channel, because <laughs> I'm dead serious. I know you're going to talk about these evidences. This is a journey you want to take people on. So hit that little subscribe button. Uh, second, read the Gospel of John. You can read anywhere in the Bible, except don't start in Leviticus. That might be painful, <laughs> as beautiful a book as that is. And just ask yourself, who is this person, Jesus? And then there's some great books. Get a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Get The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Get my dad's book, More Than a Carpenter. Get Evidence that Demands and, a Verdict by Sean McDowell. Which is a long, thick book. So just... And what I would do, I would I'd just go to church. I got to find the right church. So pray that God would make himself known to you. 
get in the scriptures first, find a Christian you trust and say, hey, I'm reading this book, let's talk about it, and just be open to the reality of what God might do in your life. And that's a journey I've seen a lot of people take. And if you're open to it, I think God's going to make himself known. Sean, thank you, my brother. Thanks for having me on.